0: This is Truth Encounter, and we want to begin to investigate the subject of war with our study leader Dave Hurtson. Deuteronomy chapter 20 begins with these words, When you go to war, and then proceeds to give God's Old Testament people instructions about how they were to conduct themselves on the battlefield. Let's join Dave as he begins our lesson titled, God and War by asking the Lord for insight into this difficult subject.
1: Father, we thank you so much for the time and your word that we can have. and We want to ask you now that your Holy Spirit would help us to be able to move into what your instruction was to your Old Testament people about the conduct of war. We pray that we'll be able to catch an insight of how things have changed under the new covenant, and how the war that we have to rage daily is not an external war against a physical enemy, but it's a war with our passions within to allow the Spirit of Christ dwelling within us to help us to guard our heart. We pray also that we would realize that we're fighting against the principalities and powers of darkness. We're going to interact with a passage where you enter into some of this messiness and this chaos And you talk to your Old Testament people about how they can deal with a very difficult issue of when enemies attack and their lives are threatened and their crops are burned and when there's an enemy that wants to rape their wives and there's a need for the men of the community, the men of the nation to go to arms, that there are some instructions that you gave. And Lord, the specific instructions you gave your Old Testament people are not directly applicable to us. But I believe that we can learn about your heart, your willingness to enter into the struggles that we face. I think that we can get to know you by watching the way that you interacted with your people in the Old Testament. And then we pray that we'll be able to catch a vision of what you're ultimately going to do at the end of time, when finally there will be the King of Kings that does enable all the nations to beat their swords into plowshares and that we're able to trade our weapons in for uh, just peaceful relationships together. It's only going to come when the Son of God comes, and we pray that we'll be looking forward to Him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Tecumseh was named Tecumseh Sherman. His mother added William, and you all know him as the man of all the kids remember this. When the teachers asked them, give us a famous quote, all the kids loved to stand up in class, at least I did, when I went to school in the deep south with General Yule's great-grandmother sitting there right in class, I love to stand up and say to this very sedate Christian school audience, war is hell. And boy, did they, oh, then everybody, you know, stood up. William Tecumseh Sherman said that. He proceeded to march from Atlanta, Georgia, to Savannah, Georgia, and burned down everything in its path. the reason he said that war was hell is because William Tecumseh Sherman, along with Ulysses S. Grant, really, in many ways, those two generals combined to move warfare from kind of a gentlemanly game, where you might even have armies that would choose their one hero to fight against the other army's hero. With the Civil War, you had the birth of modern warfare as the weapons of mass destruction would kill thousands at a time. In the Civil War, the United States lost more troops than we lost in all of our other wars combined. And there we have modern warfare. In fact, in the Vietnam War, there was over a million men that died. 45,000 Americans approximately died. 750,000 North Vietnamese, and they supposedly won, died. Another 200,000 South Vietnamese. In fact, did you realize that in the 20th century, that over about 225 million people have died. About the population of the United States has been wiped out because of warfare in just the 20th century. So we live in an age where war is very much a part of our lives. James tells us, where does war and fighting come from? Where does it come from? And James said this, doesn't come from the greed that war is within. Doesn't it come from deep inside the fact that it's it's hard for any of us to get along? Then you think back about Sarajevo. Remember, that was just the Olympics back there just a few years ago. And I remember at the opening ceremonies there in Yugoslavia and the showcase of the communist world and and how everyone was going to get along. The fresh white snow drew them outside. A group of laughing children, the youngest four and the oldest 14, trooped out of their Sarajevo apartment building to play. It seemed safe enough. The Serb artillery batteries lined the hilltops around the city had been quiet for several days. Besides, the children were inside a UN, United Nations, declared safe zone. As the Muslim boys and girls shouted and rode their sled, 120-millimeter mortar shells landed with a roar. The children dropped to the ground. And then, when more explosions followed, they ran for the beckoning safety of their building. Inside, fearful families rushed to the windows. As they watched, a shell exploded just behind the running children. The fresh snow instantly turned red. The blast and its shower of metal fragments killed five youngsters outright. A sixth died after arriving at the hospital. Two others were badly wounded. In this war, there are no safe zones, even for children. And I ask the question, where is God in the midst of this bloody mess? How did he instruct his Old Testament people about the conduct of war? What about the followers of Christ in the New Testament? And where in the world is it all going to end? Some of you would just sit there and you say, Dave, you know, I'd love to believe in Christ. I'd love to believe in, in all that church is supposed to represent, this thing called Christianity, of turning the other cheek and peace on earth, goodwill towards men. But to be honest with you, David, as I look at the world and as I lived in the world, I've got some serious questions about the world that we live in. And I don't like it. I don't like reading a report about children that are killed because an artillery shell is lobbed into their playground. Where is God in the midst of this world? A lot of you can get angry with God about the world that we live in, but I want you to think hard about what are your alternatives Like, let's suppose that there isn't an ultimate good God. Let's suppose that there isn't someone that cares. Do you have a better faith, commitment to believe that really than any meaning in anything? Maybe the fact that you are so concerned, like I mentioned to you the last time we got together, maybe you're so concerned about children being killed because you reflect an ultimate being in all the world that really cares about that. Maybe you hate the agony and the bloodshed of war because it's, there's just something not right about that. If just the forces of chance and probability and evolution are true, if you're just here by the grinding out of mechanical forces, then why do you care so much? Why does it bother you? In fact, why do you get angry? In fact, why do you curse God when things go wrong? What is it in your heart? What is it in the human heart that as soon as things seem to go haywire, we curse him? Maybe the story of the Bible is getting at the very heart of what's going on in human existence. The truth of the matter is that the God of the Bible is a God that reveals himself not as an impersonal watchmaker who's out there somewhere after wanting this whole thing up and then just leaving us abandoned. The God in the Bible is revealed as a God that enters into all the messiness of what it means to be a family, what it means to be a nation, what it means to be a people, what it means to live in the world. The Bible begins to tell this story that God begins to work to try to rescue and to try to bring a Savior into this world. He starts to work with a specific people. He calls out Abraham who eventually produces Jacob, who eventually produces the 12 tribes of Israel. And a lot of the story of the Bible, especially from chapter 12 of Genesis on, is the story of God trying to carve out this nation. And he needs to protect them. He needs to keep them secluded. He needs to keep them from infiltrating with all the other nations so they'll be lost. Why? Because from that nation, he wants to bring his own son into the world. And he wants his son to be born of a Jewish woman so that he can become just like us. And the Lord, randomly in his grace, chose the Jewish people to be those, those bearers of the promise in the world. But as we read the story of the Old Testament, we read about tremendous competition, tremendous animosity towards those chosen people. People don't want them to live in their land, a lot like our world. People want to exterminate them. We find a lot of trouble among the Jewish people themselves, and that is there was a tremendous danger for them just to join with the Canaanites, who were much more populous, and just to start to worship the gods that the Canaanites worshipped, and just to be lost in the midst of all of this immorality and idolatry. And so the Lord God of heaven is entering into a relationship with his people where he's trying to give birth to this nation, give them a homeland, and he wants to do this so ultimately he can bring salvation to the world. Now, I don't understand all the reasons why God chose to write the story like that, but you need to think about it, that is the story he's writing and you live in a world where there is tremendous animosity towards the jewish people it's continued it's going to continue to the end of time until it culminates in the entire world seeking to strangle this people and finally the son of god will come well we're going to go back to the beginning of that animosity some of the early stages and the nations coming against Israel. It began with people like the Philistines coming against the Israelites and and raping their wives and destroying their fields and and seeking to take their land. And the Lord would raise up a man like Saul who was head and shoulders above all the other Israelites. And he would gather together the Israelites to fight against the Philistines who had invaded their land. And we're going to study what Moses instructed these future generations of Israelites how they were to fight. So let's look at it. It's a pattern in Deuteronomy chapter 20. How many of you have ever been in the military? Well, you need to pay attention real carefully because you're going to hear about the strangest army that you've ever heard about. This army, before it goes into battle, calls the preacher to come out. In the Old Testament, it was the priest. And Deuteronomy chapter 20 begins with the priest coming out the spiritual leader of the people, and look how he begins. It says in chapter 20, verse 1, when you go out to war against your enemies, notice we're talking about enemies, not just going out to war to gobble out more territory. We're not talking about Nebuchadnezzar's armies that are moving from Babylon, seeking to conquer all the then known world. We're not talking about the armies of Rome moving out from the Tiber River to totally subjugate the entire world. That's another discussion. It's the book of Daniel that talks about this tremendous covetousness for world domination. We're talking about a people who have been attacked. We're talking about people who have been abused. We're talking about people that must guard their own homes and their own land and their own nation. We're talking about enemies to the ancient people of Israel. It says, when you go to war against your enemies, and you see horses and chariots and army greater than yours... Now, what's happening? The children of Israel have been attacked, and they go out to fight, say, against the Philistines. And as they're gathered in this ancient-style warfare, you can get the picture. The Philistines gather on the plains, down on the plains going towards the Mediterranean Sea. The Israelites live up in the Judean Mountains. It's about 2,500 feet high. And they go down these plains, out of the mountains, and they look across the plain, and there they see horse-drawn chariots by the hundreds. And they look at themselves, and all they have is spears and swords and shields. All they have is infantry, no chariots and no horses. In fact, the Lord told them specifically in the book of Deuteronomy, don't you multiply horses and chariots. Don't depend upon your armament. Don't depend upon the equivalent in the ancient world of tanks. And so we've got this scene. The children of Israel come out and they look at, now, which side do you want to be on? You want to be on the side of the infantry? You want to be on the side of the tank, of the the chariots? Well, from a human standpoint, I want to be on the side of the chariots. And notice what the Lord says. He tells Israelites, He says, do not be afraid of them. I love that. Don't you love someone that comes out right on the verge of a battle and tells you, don't be afraid? Kids, do your parents ever tell you, no, don't be afraid? Doesn't that help? <laughs> well, sometimes it does. <laughs> it matters it, who's saying, don't be afraid. I want you to see, God has, he says to them, and he has his representatives say to them, don't be afraid of them. Why? Now, notice what the priest says, because... The Lord your God, who brought you up out of Egypt, will be with you. What a tremendous consolation. I want you to feel this. An Israelite warrior in the Old Testament is getting ready to go to battle. And the representative of God comes out and he says, Young men, don't be afraid. I know they have chariots. I know they have horses. I know it looks like an an unbeatable foe. But I don't want you to be afraid. And some youngster raises his hand and says, Officer, why shouldn't I be afraid? This officer looks at this young Israelite soldier and says, because you are the army that was delivered through the Red Sea. And every Israelite in the Old Testament could remember that tremendous saga of their history. It was the Alamo of the Old Testament, only in the Old Testament Alamo, not everyone died. Everyone was delivered. And remember, the Lord took them through the Red Sea. And I love the joke that uh, Eddie Irving told me. He told me about the Israelites coming through the Red Sea and it was this cartoon where the very last teenager coming through the Red Sea, and Moses is trying to scatter him along, and, and this Israelite's got a surfboard. And Moses turned to this Israelite and said, Son, you really don't understand the implications of what's going on here. And God brought those tremendous walls of water down, and they were not to surf on. They destroyed the, the cream of the Egyptian army. And that's what the Israelite soldier would be reminded of, the great victory of the past. And he would say, son, you might be facing chariots and horses, and we might just be here as foot soldiers, but the Lord God that divided the waters of the Red Sea and demolished the epitome army in the ancient Near East, the Egyptians were the army of the ancient Near East, we have already won the greatest victory, so we're going to be all right today. And they would believe. The priest would go on and say this. When you're about to go into battle, the priest shall come forward and address the army. He shall say, hear, O Israel. Today you're going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted. Do not be afraid. Do not be terrified or give way to panic before them. Why? For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you victory. And so the Israelites began the battle. They would go in, it reminds me a little bit of Gettysburg. If you saw the film Gettysburg, one of the most moving times in that film is this main professor who is getting ready to take his main division into the Battle of Gettysburg. And he has a bunch of recalcitrant troops who have already gone AWOL and they don't want to fight because they got a raw deal in the Union Army. And this main professor stands up before them and he's very understanding with them. But then in, in a voice that only a maniac could give in this quiet, deep woods kind of a presentation, he shared with them why they're going to fight, that they've got a great cause. And he asked them to willingly join them. And as those troops join that main division, and as the Battle of Gettysburg unfolds, it's that division composed of these soldiers that were getting ready to run, it's that division who hold again and again and again. It's really hard to say it. They held against Hood's Texas division. But the course of the United States history changed because of that speech given by that Maine professor that caused those Maine boys to hold. And they held because they wanted there to be freedom. They They held for a great cause. Well that same kind of drama, that same kind of impact is what this priest had on those troops. And he was saying to those young men before they went into battle as they went to face those chariots, he said, don't be afraid, don't be terrified, don't panic. And those Israelite soldiers following a King David or a King Saul or later on a King Hezekiah or at King Josiah, those Israelite warriors would claim the promise of the living God. You'd say, Dave, what does it have to do with me? What does it have to do with me? Well, you know, Jesus does an incredible thing, and I want to jump. I think it's really important not just to, to give you an Old Testament principle and then just wait all the way to the end of my talk with you to try to help you to think about it in your own modern setting today. You see, we fight a different kind of a battle. Some of you might face physical enemies. Some of you might be called to serve in the United States forces and to be able to defend our homeland. All of us could face that. And this passage would become immediately, I'm sure if I was on the verge of the evening before, I'd want to open up to Deuteronomy 20, and it would be very relevant. And I would love for the Lord to say, Dave, don't be afraid, because I am with you. Isn't that great? You see, the Scripture tells us That as followers of Christ in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, it's not Philistines and it's not Canaanites and it's not the Egyptian armies of Pharaoh that are out to snuff you out. In fact, Jesus Christ stood before Pilate in the book of John and, and Pilate asked Jesus, Jesus, are you a king? And Jesus said, yes, I am a king. Pilate said, are you the king of Israel? He said, yes, I am. And then Jesus said this, but my kingdom is not of this world. In fact, Jesus said, if my kingdom were of this world, Pilate, you wouldn't be standing right there. If my kingdom were of this world, my armies would fight for me. But my kingdom's not of this world. Because there's something far more serious. There's a, there's a world conflict that's much bigger than the world that's going on here. And the weapons that are used are not just your meaty little swords of the Iron Legions of Rome. We're trying to get into the human heart. We're trying to get deep inside of where does does Roman violence and brutality and and where does this seething cauldron of, of animosity among nations, where does it all come from? And Jesus was saying there's a far deeper conflict than just whether or not Israel should throw off the Roman yoke. the most mighty person that ever lived on planet Earth looked like a total weakling as he allowed the forces of brutality to snuff at his life. If you're a father of Jesus today, if you've come to know him, you know that he won the greatest victory that could have ever been won. Because because he allowed himself to hang on the cross, and we studied about those Roman soldiers just spitting at him and, and slapping him and mocking him, We talked about how our ego would have just sucked them right down and would have destroyed them when they yelled, if you're the king of the Jews, prove it. Come down off the cross and and predict for us and all that kind of abuse Jesus took. We talked about the question, why did he stay there? Because this battle was not the conquering of a little pharaoh in the Old Testament. This was the battle against the ultimate forces of darkness, the king of the darkness of this world, Satan, the adversary. And Jesus allowed Satan to totally have his way with him, you might say. He allowed all that the terrible rejection of God could mean. And Jesus on the cross of Calvary just let it all be sucked into himself. And that's warfare.
0: The Old Testament people of God needed to defeat physical enemies in order to gain possession of the land that God had given to them. The New Testament people of God need to defeat an immaterial enemy who is seeking to block fellow humans from discovering the truth about God's gift of forgiveness in Christ. The goal of this spiritual warfare is not to take lives, but to offer the gift of life. Dave stressed how Jesus Christ on the cross attacked the very center of evil deep in the human heart. It is the power of his sacrifice that alone can transform the anger, hostility, and brutal hatred that ignites personal, family, and international conflict. The Apostle Paul told us in 2 Corinthians 5 that we were to be ambassadors of reconciliation, not rabble-rousers inciting hatred. Be sure to join us next time for part two of war. What is God's part?